This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Become a patron today at patreon.com forward slash into the portal. Biblical tales of the Old Testament spoke of a great king known as Solomon, whose wisdom handed down by God was like none that any other kingdoms that surrounded his empire had ever seen. The son of King David, the great hero of Hebrew legend, who slayed the mighty giant Goliath and restored order to his realm. David abdicated the throne to his son Solomon around 965 BCE. Despite the many legends, it was the massive wealth of Solomon that was the most well-known throughout the ancient world. His temples were adorned with gold, nearly 13 and a half tons per year delivered through trade to his kingdom from a mystical place called Ophir. But where exactly this legendary treasure trove was located is uncertain. The legend of King Solomon's mines is one of biblical archaeology's most prolific mysteries. Where could the legendary lands of Ophir be located? And after Solomon's temple was sacked, what happened to his legendary treasure, including the Ark of the Covenant? Join us on Into the Portal for an ancient legend of biblical proportions and the search for King Solomon's mines. Hello, and welcome back into the portal. I'm Anne-Marie. And I'm Andrew McKay. And we're back with a myth of biblical proportions. (laughs) (laughs) Most definitely we are, yeah. Getting into it. (laughs) But before we do, um, of course, we have our usual housekeeping here. Mm A couple new reviews this week. Thank you so much, people. And this was from the U.S. iTunes, as usual, right? That's like where we get all of our reviews. (laughs) We don't have that many Canadian... Fans. Oh. It's like all, all of our American friends. It's I know. Awesome, I checked cool. back and there was nothing. But anyways. Yeah. So thank you so much to uh, D675. <laughs> um, titled Insightful and Organically Entertaining with five stars. Cool. Thank you. Thank and you so much. It was so funny. They were talking about how they love the intro music. Um, And they actually, they were like, Amber, is that you singing? (laughs) I was like, oh my gosh. Doing the wailing voice. Oh yeah, sorry, I do not have the voice of an angel. (laughs) Or singing voice of an angel. (laughs) But we appreciate that. And we appreciate your comments on how you appreciate um, our less scripted format. So Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, appreciate that one. Because we do like to just keep it more conversational and a few people out there we have had the opposite right like even on youtube there's been some comments where it's like oh like your banter gets in the way of me learning stuff and i'm like oh but but we're just having right. fun yeah you know like, it's not a lecture no so and that's the reason why we can often interrupt each other too because like we have we're, we're both <laughs> like that and we all, we'll have like a brilliant idea pop into our heads and we're like i gotta get it out i gotta yeah. say it because it is just an organic conversation so totally we appreciate you recognizing that for sure. so you get it thank you <laughs> 
<laughs> and then we also had Tim O'B. And I loved this. He says, they hook you from the from the beginning. So, yeah, he's like, he really liked the Clarenville episode we just did recently. That's nice. an awesome choice. And actually, that's a great um, little segue into something else we wanted to discuss right before we get into it today. Definitely. And that is um, the bonus mini-sode. So, Patreon. You guys know we do Patreon. We've had it for a few months now. Yeah. And... Uh, December is upon us. It is the season of giving. Yes. And we are wanting to give back to all of you guys. So what we want to do is give you a little preview of what we offer on Patreon. So our December mini-sode and our December full episode will both be available for all of you to go and preview. Yeah. So the full episode will be available for free for all of you guys for um, a period of two weeks. Yeah. So it's just going to give you a chance to jump on there and just see what else we're making and... and, Totally. To get a little bit closer to some of your favorite creators, exactly. besides us, like there's a lot of really cool shows out there too. So absolutely, it's just a really fun way to get people to just check it out. It's an awesome platform. Definitely, like mm. yeah, and we just we appreciate you guys for listening, and obviously we we really appreciate our patrons that are that are on there already. And yeah, we just want the rest of you to kind of uh, yeah get a taste of yeah of what we have to offer. Exactly. So it's uh, yeah, it'll be leading up to Christmas, and uh, yeah, so mm-hmm. um, we're excited about that. Exactly. You ready to jump into this? Yes, let's get into it. Okay. So, today we, like Amber said, we're discussing a topic of biblical proportions. Um, And for those of you who were, you know, like raised Christian and went to Sunday school, you'll be familiar with the stories of King David Mm -hmm. and King Solomon. I did not pay attention in Sunday school at all. Um, So I was pretty much unaware other than like, you know, you'll hear it in the, in the ether of legend and lore. Totally. Or even just the classic uh, David and Goliath, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. But yeah, today we're talking about the legendary mines of King Solomon, possibly the wealthiest ruler in all of the ancient world, in all of history, really. Okay. So the story of the mines themselves is really a part of fiction. And Some of you will be familiar with this because of the novel. It came out in 1885, and it was titled King Solomon's Mines. So this is bestseller. (laughs) This was like the J.K. Rowling, uh, (laughs) Sir uh, Sir H. R. Haggard, Sir H. uh, Ryder Haggard was his name. (laughs) So yeah, this guy, this was the most successful novel of its time. He's credited with sort of launching the lost world literary genre. That's impressive. Which is pretty impressive, right? So the story uh, tells of a search of an unexplored region of Africa by a group of adventurers led by a character named Alan uh, Quarterman. Um, and he's looking for his missing brother in the story. And uh, it's like, an, it's you know, he's a British, British uh, subject, so it's an English adventure novel. Oh. But this is kind of how, this is how the story of the mines kind of was brought into the public consciousness in, okay. in the 1880s. That's interesting. I actually didn't know that it was about his brother, a search for the brother. I just thought it was a search for the mines themselves. Right. So you actually, no, I don't think it's the main character's brother. He's contracted to find someone. I see. Okay. Um, and, so there's a, gets... and there's been several movies made um, based off the novel now, too. We've watched the uh, 1930s. 50s version, I believe it was. It was like 1940s or 50s. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah it was like the first like t- early Technicolor. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, totally recommend watching it. It's fascinating. But yeah, so this novel would inspire the search for what people believe to be the very real minds of King Solomon. So who the heck is this King Solomon dude? Right. All right. So <laughs> King Solomon is, of course, this legendary king in the Hebrew Bible. So he was the third king of Israel. Is He's, he Hebrew is the Old Testament, right? 
Yes, okay. essentially. Just to yeah. So it would be like the Old Testament would have been translated from ancient Hebrew into, I think it would have been into Greek and then into, Ooh, yeah. or would it have been to, from, we're, we, I have those notes later on. We'll, okay. we'll get to that cool. interpretation. So. All right. So, but yeah, mentioned in the Hebrew Bible, the third king of Israel, he's said to have ruled some, I mean, this is debated, obviously it's debated whether or not he was even a real person so a mythical or that theme. he existed to the extravagance that he's described as and yeah. maybe just a more of a tribal ruler possibly uh-huh. huh. but he allegedly ruled between the years of 965 bce and 925 bce and succeeded his father none other than king david the guy who slayed goliath yeah in the legendary that's story, amazing right? and just for reference sake for everyone like we just covered the sea peoples and that was at the close of the bronze age so essentially this is happening about 150 to 250 years later. Yes. So between, yeah. So anyways, just for reference. Yeah, no, totally. Like these are the empires that sort of can't, yeah, can't, yeah. They ro- filled rose the up gap. after. Exactly. Absolutely. Totally. So same neck of the woods too, right? We're still talking about Mediterranean. We're still talking about the Near East, the Sinai Peninsula, that sort of fertile crescent, all of that. So exactly. just to help people orient themselves historically. Totally. No, mm-hmm. definitely. Thank you for pointing that out. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and he reigned, he, he reigned over this region, like Amber just mentioned, excuse me. And it was a super, super prosperous empire. Like, he was definitely one of the most wealthy rulers of this time. Mm-hmm. And one of his greatest achievements was he built multiple temples, but one of them was the, the first and largest temple in what would basically be, you know, end up being modern-day Israel, to house the legendary Ark of the Covenant, Aww. which is, of course, the chest that the Hebrews carried out of Egypt that you know, uh, contain the, the 10 commandments during the Exodus, right? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a pretty significant thing to be, uh, you know, storing in your empire. And this was just one of his many treasures, right? That's so fascinating. That's such a cool side mystery. We need to do a whole episode on the Ark of the Covenant. Oh God, it definitely mm-hmm. deserves its own full episode for, for sure. sure yeah. Maybe we could even do uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark on a film Friday. <sighs> That'd be cool. That would actually be kind of cool. That'd for, be like really the fun. historical references and it's well, but one okay, of it's on the list. It is on the list. It's on the list. <laughs> so yeah, so basically, you know, he amassed this wealth because of trade relationships, and he focused his administration in particular on the ones he, his father had established before him, and these were relationships with the Phoenicians, like the greatest seafarers of the ancient world, and in okay. particular, this king of the Phoenicians, um, Haram the first, the king of Tyre, which is a, uh, I think we mentioned that in the Sea People's episode, is essentially like a city. Like the city of Tyre. Yeah. Okay. And that would have been in, sorry, it, it would have been in Phoenicia. Do you know what part exactly of well, the Mediterranean just, that's that is? That's just it. It's like the, the Phoenicians controlled m- most of the Mediterranean. They also extended into the Levant and into Arabia. So it's kind of, they had massive territory. So it's not really, I, I don't know exactly where Tyre was. Has Tyre has it been excavated? I, I wonder. I wonder. I I think I might be. It's so funny, right? Like hearkening back to the Sea People's episode. There's so many names and terms. Like it's easy to get twisted around. Oh, for sure. But essentially, this relationship made him super wealthy. They were trading luxury products, importing gold and silver, sandalwood, pearls, ivory, apes, and peacocks. And this is all referenced in the Bible, which we'll get to in a second here. But. I just looked it up. Uh, Tyre oh, is actually it. a part of Lebanon. Ah, it's okay. It's on the coast of Lebanon. So mm-hmm. it's a coastal city. That yeah. makes sense, obviously, right? Yeah, a port city. Mm-hmm. I feel like I was confusing it with... I can't remember the name. Anyway. <laughs> Many of the other... Many of the cities. other locations. How about Punt? <laughs> <laughs> the city of Punt. Yeah, could have been. <laughs> could have been. 
But basically, this guy, King Solomon, was delivered... I mean, this is how... It, this is the the measurements in ancient times. 603 score and six talents, or 13.5 tons of gold per year, was, oh. was the amount said to come into Solomon uh, from these, uh, you know, his, his ancient trading partners. 13.5 tons per year. The... The estimated net worth was in excess of sixty trillion dollars in modern modern value <laughs> for King Solomon. Altogether, you mean, like, or every year? I mean, presumably that's from his. No, no, that's altogether, altogether and that's right? just his gold. Like, so it's not he obviously had or... exactly like diamonds and rubies and emeralds and silver. Huh. So I mean, that's a lot of cashish. That's interesting, and. I'm just thinking now, too, like, obviously, like, you were at the close of the Bronze Age in the sort of Dark Ages leading into the Iron Age. Would bronze have been a big component of his wealth as well? Absolutely. Okay. Um, or at least copper still being a major component in the manufacturing of bronze. Right. And that possibly being a major player in his... his uh, Ability to trade? Yeah. Okay. His, mm-hmm. his trading position Interesting. or whatever, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So... Here's a quote. Um, I believe this is straight from the Old Testament. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's from the Book of Kings. So now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 603 score and six talents of gold. Besides that, he had uh, of the merchantmen and of the traffic of the spices and merchants and all the kings of Arabia and all the governors of the country, basically saying that everybody was shipping their good stuff into Solomon. Totally. He was the be-all, end-all, apparently, the way it sounds. Right. And, yeah, so, like I said, he succeeded his father, David, who ruled over a massive empire, you know, preceding him. And Oh, David. Yeah, but we, of course, don't know... Um, we don't know if he was a real person, but if he did, he would have ruled around 1000 BC. So like, you know, 45 years before he passed it on to his allegedly favorite son. Do you know why he like abdicated the throne? Well, he would have been getting pretty old. Okay. So it was more like a moral decision to be like, I'm no longer able to rule there. I don't think that was just it. Like there's, (laughs) I didn't read the full Bible for this episode. Let's just Mm -hmm. say that. But, uh, there's a lot more there. Like, we could do an entire podcast just on the uh, existence of David and Solomon. I totally, because I remember, like, I went to Christian Sunday school too, and I do remember that there were <laughs> a lot of bad kings and a lot of good kings. And I'm pretty sure that David came about in a time when uh, there was a lot of persecution and a lot of all this stuff with um, Hebrew-speaking populations and all that kind of stuff. Right. And then, essentially, he... <sighs> I'm, I'm forgetting the nuances of his whole battle with Goliath, but essentially he takes on this giant and becomes king because he defeats it and no one else is able to. Yeah. And I'm not sure if it's before or after David that there's these other evil kings that are, again, very repressive. And I remember this one story where basically, I don't know if it was King, I, I'm thinking King Solomon in my head, but he like threw a bunch of Jews into a pit. And they okay. all just, <laughs> this is like That's, my, my yeah. sixth, um, like my six year old, uh, memory here when I was sitting in Crazy. Sunday school being terrified. See, I don't remember stories. any of this stuff at all. <laughs> and that wasn't even at uh, Christian or sorry, um, Catholic school. That was at like a Christian, like a, um, uh, what's called Baptist. So it's not even like huh. putting the fear of God right, right. Yeah, but it, yeah. it stuck with me. That, so anyways, yeah, I don't know. I wonder if in those in my little kid mind, if King Solomon would have been the bad one or good one. We, if anybody out there listening is like obviously a, a religious scholar or yeah. you know just knows more about this than us, because we're you know we this isn't a religious podcast. We're freshies, but uh, yeah, no, yeah. reach reach out to us because we'd like to know. I mean, yeah. obviously, there's 
a lot of it's allegorical, right? So like the idea of Goliath, I, I you know, being a giant sent from like, you know, like a... Like a demigod type thing? From, or like from a... I'm picturing like, you know, from modern day Iran or something, or like enemies of Israel, you know what I mean? And right. it's like an allegory of like the, the monster that is the other. Oh yeah, that, that could course, so, right? definitely be it. Or it could be even the, what was that race of giants that they talk about? And like uh, Astonishing Legends has touched on it quite a bit. Ooh, and ooh, yeah. it's the legends of the... Oh, it's really escaping me. It's a really <laughs> so, cool word. So maybe it was actual giants then. Yeah. Who knows? Well, people think that. Like, I don't even, I don't know what the basis of legitimacy is for all that, but. And maybe he really did. So if David was a real person and did that, that's pretty badass. That would be badass. But we, we don't have a lot of evidence to, to prove that either Solomon or David were real other than their references in the Bible. But there yeah. was one thing discovered recently. I'll reference this again later in evidence section, but mm-hmm. it was called the Tel Dan Stel. Okay. It's basically an inscribed stone that was found in, I believe, Lebanon. I have that down below. I don't have it in this Mm -hmm. section here. Mm -hmm. But um, there's an inscription on it that references the house of David in Hebrew. I see. And that's the only discovery outside of the actual text of the Old Testament. The Tel Dan Stella. Referencing what they believe to be like the house of David, a.k.a. the kingdom of David. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Maybe he's a real guy. I, I think there's something to that. It's mm-hmm. interesting, too, because I was just looking into the Danites before we sat down to record this, and we're getting the Tel Dan Stel. I wonder if that ah. has anything to do with the Dan. Anyways, that's, that's a side note, too. There's a lot of linguistic connections in these There stories. really is. <laughs> so, like, getting into, like, the actual source of this wealth, though, right? Because, like yeah. we said, the mines themselves are of myth. They were first conceived of in a novel. So it's not like... And even before that, we get um, a historic sort of like search for these mines. Mm -hmm. But you could even make the argument that it wasn't mined. It was um, like procured through trade and through looting perhaps, but who knows. But in order to contextualize this wealth, it's important to kind of go back into the trade and the relations of the time, right? Yeah. And of course, again, in the Bible, the Old Testament, we do get reference to none other than the Queen of Sheba. Right. Mm -hmm. And so Sheba herself, she is considered a very mysterious, historical woman of power. And she has been talked about in quite a few um, historical records here. So including the Old Testament, so we get the Hebrew Bible and the Muslim Quran. She also actually appears in a lot of paintings in Persian and Turkish traditions, as well as in Kabbalistic treatises, so trades, that type right. of thing. Right. And then um, again, in medieval Christian mystical works. So yeah, she's she's a big deal. Yeah. And a lot of the references to her are sort of like she embodies a lot of like divine wisdom and that she is basically what is known as a foreteller of the cult of the holy cross so like the holy trinity Ah, so that's interesting because this is obviously pre the birth like well before the birth of christ exactly okay totally and so it's not really known who she was historically where she came from uh there's references to her in africa in arabia in mesopotamia and then we get her actually um, coming into Solomon's kingdom. So she, her and Solomon actually had a bit of a relationship, it looks mm-hmm. like. And so it's interesting here. Um, it says here, like I was reading through quite a few sources, um, trying to ascertain who she actually might have been and how it's actually quite a difficult question to answer. No one really knows. Yeah. Um, but she is a very important figure. And it's actually interesting because it says here that these tales of Solomon and Queen Sheba 
have provided the founding myths for the modern states of Israel and Ethiopia. Yeah. So she is very important when it comes to Ethiopian culture and history. Definitely. And but that's not the only place that she supposedly may have ruled over. All right. So okay. let's get into it here. So essentially, this Queen Sheba, um, in the biblical account. She actually goes to Solomon's kingdom and she is wowed by his like, you know, impressive amounts of wealth, wisdom, all this kind of stuff. And she says, allegedly, she proclaimed that to him, your wealth and prosperity far surpasses the report I had heard, <laughs> which is interesting. So she's, Fallen. yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fallen. So essentially she actually ended up giving Solomon more gold. So about 120 talents of it, along with a whole bunch of precious stones and spices. So lots of gifts. And she hmm. is there sort of in a way to establish relations, trade relations with the Phoenicians. And um, and she also kind of got a little hanky panky with uh, Solomon. Sounds as like there. the legends go. Yeah. Exactly. I believe there was one legend actually that she gave birth to his son really? after she returned back to her homelands. And then what happened was he the son went to visit Solomon when he grew up, and Solomon was like enamored by him and loved him and wanted him to come and rule in his place. And the son actually returned back to Sheba. Really? Yeah. He didn't want to stay. Interesting. That was just a side. You know, that's interesting because this just popped into my head too. Um, maybe he would have, that he would have really latched on to that. If that story is true to that kid, because he allegedly had 700 wives and 300 concubines. So that's a thousand women to keep track of. Um, a thousand maybe, plus babies. Uh, yeah, that's, you know, you're going to have to pick your favorites, I think. Yeah. Um, you're tough remembering but all those names. You know why he might have favored this one in particular? Is because perhaps, as the legend goes, perhaps Queen Sheba was actually responsible for the importation of a lot of this wealth after these relations were established. Obviously, he already had his own sources of wealth beyond that. Yeah. But what if he was thinking, we need to, like, we need to monopolize this. We need to make sure we get this, you know, all together. That when I pass on, we have the conjoined kingdoms of my mine and then this other like in Arabia or Africa or wherever it was. Exactly. Totally. So essentially after um the queen had established these relations, she's trying to uh, yeah, establish trade between the Phoenicians and Solomon. That is established successfully and she leaves and returns the lands of Sheba with her retinue. All right. And so essentially from there comes the mystery of where she went. Where is Sheba? Where, yeah. What do we like? Where, where is she getting all this wealth and all the spices yeah. from and all this kind of stuff? Totally. Because I don't think she was from, well, actually she was from considered the area of uh, Phoenicia, but that's a big Massive. That's massive, exactly. And possibly even extending to, like we'll get to later, North and South America, if you believe they traveled as far as they did. So huge empire. Totally. So yeah, we get so many different areas where it could have been the land of Sheba. Is it in Arabia? Is it in Africa? Uh, could be any of these. So... Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> it's a real, it's a real mystery. It is. It's, it's kind of. It is. And like we said, like she's a very important person in the founding of um, Ethiopia. Yeah. And so, oh, actually here, I actually have this quote from the story that I just related here about the sun and how essentially um, this is interesting here. So it says King Solomon is delighted with his firstborn son, which probably wasn't the case, but firstborn <laughs> son that he wants to recognize Yeah, sure. and tries in vain to convince the son, Melanich, to remain in Israel to succeed him as king. However, Melanich choose to, chooses to return to the land of Sheba 
And Solomon sends the firstborn sons of Israel's elders with his son from Israel to Ethiopia. And the Ark of the Covenant travels with them. Ah. So there you get an Ark of the Covenant reference. So okay. perhaps it had already been moved out of his... Um, what was it called? The, uh, well, the temple. The temple of Solomon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So a lot of Ethiopians do sort of cling to the myth that Sheba was a part of their heritage. And this is just one aspect of it, though. Like, there's so many different areas of the world where Sheba could have come from. Yeah. And different um, different translations of things that kind of uh, make it muddy. No, they definitely, mm-hmm. they definitely do. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you, yeah, like there's this text, the Kebra Nagast, um, in that's it translates to the glory of the kings, the Ethiopian text, right? And that's one of the few things that, well, at least they fall back on to say, here's this evidence, so to speak. It, the The text dates between the sixth and fourteenth centuries. That's quite a wide range, um, and it just it references Queen Sheba as the as the ruler of Ethiopia. Okay. Like definitively, Ooh, that, and that's this where is the same. From. Sorry, this is the same text that that myth came from about the sun. So that's all right. wrapped up in this. And this source. is, of course, they. We'll get to this again later when we talk about the treasures of Solomon, because that's another part of this mystery. Um, but they, the Ethiopians, claim that they have the Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> they actually legit claim that. Yes, they're they're Orthodox Church. So everyone else in the world is just looking for nothing that doesn't exist anywhere else, and they're just... There's lots of people, I think, that claim to have it hidden away in some secret place. That's BS, man. Why don't you call photos and show us so everyone can just lay it to rest? <sighs> I don't know. I is mean, it because of the mystical powers associated possibly. with Possibly. I mean, I don't know, right? Like, hmm. it's definitely fascinating because of all these connections to these ancient stories, right? Of Solomon and of Queen Sheba, and mm-hmm. it's just, it's, I love this stuff. This is what I, this is like my... Oh, my bread and butter. So it's called the Glory of the Kings, hey? This um, Kabra Nagast. Right. An important text to the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. That's interesting. So they actually rename uh, Queen Queen Sheba as Makeda. And this text does identify the lands of Sheba as ancient Ethiopia. Yeah. Huh. We, so that's yeah. interesting. So that's another mythos kind of... Definitely. Because obviously, yeah, the question is, where did she from? And, and it, it, is there clues in her visits to where the mines were? Um, you know, like, obviously some of this trade and wealth is coming from her. She's got to be mining... Her, her empire has to be mining it from somewhere. The Phoenicians have to yeah. be getting what they're getting from somewhere. Obviously, Solomon has his own mines as well. Um, but there's got to be some sort of, div- you know, ultimate source, hmm. so to speak. You know what I mean? Um a lot of people believe that um, the location of Sheba was actually in present-day Yemen. Right. Okay. Um, this I came derives, across this too, yeah. Yeah. It's like it derives from the popular translation of Sheba into the Arabic, into Saba, like the kingdom of Saba. I see. Which okay. was in, yeah, what is now modern-day Yemen. But hmm. um, yeah, yeah. The kingdom of Saba was to believe to be, let me just see, I've got these notes here. So I don't even know, like, I have this comment here where it says, like, which makes the Ethiopian claims on Queen Sheba a little dubious, if you believe it to be Saba and Yemen. But Ethiopia and Yemen are fairly close. They are. Together. They're literally just on other sides of the... Like a strait. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, so, and obviously trade was massively extensive, so... So you would think that maybe it would have been, I'm just thinking now from a strategic standpoint, it would have been... Um, optimal to have both sides of that canal covered, right? Yeah. So that way you're basically controlling that. That's a gate. I don't know. That could be really significant, especially if Solomon's um, got his ships traveling in and out of 
that sort of straight. Yeah, totally. Hmm. But it's like they both have kind of equal claim, you know what I mean? Because we've got the Kebra Nagast in Ethiopia and then also mentions of the kingdom of Saba in the Hebrew Bible and the Quran as well. Right. So obviously it was a real place and whether or not there was a an, a literal, because that's the thing, right? Was there a literal Queen Sheba or was there an area called that and yeah. it's been misinterpreted through translation? Totally. Where it's like a anthropomization of the land itself. Exactly. Yeah, so we, like, we, we don't just like really the know. jewel of the Nile. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> but anyway, let's get back to Solomon here. Yeah. Because Solomon. he was obviously interacting with Sheba. Whether or not that's going to lead us to where his minds were, we, we don't know yet, right? Mm-hmm. But we know coming from the Far East, he had wealth coming in, not just from her, but from the Phoenicians too. Um, trading with the empires of India, um, acquiring rare spices, jewels, gold from further east. Um, some say that the some say that Sheba is the one who brought him exclusively these spices from the east, and that she showed up in these massive camel caravan mm. routes, which totally reminds me of uh, Cambyses' car- uh, camel oh, yeah. caravan trekking through the desert or whatever. Totally. Um, <laughs> yeah, I just love that stuff. Oh, Cambyses! But really, they they completed most of their trade with with the Phoenicians, and whether or not Sheba, like you made that comment just a minute ago, how she was kind of like bit of a middle like woman, a diplomat perhaps in a way mm-hmm. but maybe just for the phoenician trade in the levant and not necessarily coastal trade off of the sea because mm-hmm. solomon has his own ships the navy of tarish okay is how it was described or whatever right <laughs> but uh yeah let's, he's got it going on this he's, guy. <laughs> he's got it going on he really does and and so do the phoenicians obviously right like they were trading all over the map um and this gave solomon the ability to build not just the temple of solomon housing the ark of the covenant but a total of six massive fortresses that uh, were built to secure his trade with with the east and the west oh okay yeah six mighty fortresses hey, i wonder where all those were stationed i know right there. and obviously they're not the, the ruins are, of all of them aren't left today mm. because of uh, the incursion of the Babylonians, which we'll get to in a second here. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so this is what we know so far. The Phoenicians are delivering treasures to Solomon from the east and west. So this includes apes, exotic animals, gold, silver, we know all that stuff. Right. All right. According to, <laughs> we watched the old classic In Search yeah, of yeah. series with Nimoy, <laughs> um, wheat and oils are what the Phoenicians needed the most. Oh, interesting. So... That kind of makes sense. I mean, obviously, Solomon's in the area of, like, basically the Fertile Crescent, right? Yeah. Farming out the wazoo. Mm-hmm. So these people are traveling around. They're not farmers. They're seafarers. So that makes sense. Um, but was it just food he was trading with them is the question. So hmm. possibly copper as well. There's okay. evidence of copper mines in the area that could have been Solomon's and trading that with them so they could make bronze. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we, we, don't, we don't actually know what exactly they needed from from Solomon's kingdom. That's interesting, though, that you say wheat and oils, because honestly, like, in the ancient world, and even today, right, increasingly so, as we probably are going to have, like, massive grain failures and that type of thing of of monocrops and stuff, but the consideration of wheat as gold in itself, because you can eat it, like, it's a lot more valuable when push comes to shove than some pretty-looking metal that you can mold into jewelry or something, so... Huh, that's that, actually a good point, too. It's yeah, also golden in color. It is golden, yeah. So, you know, there could be a lot of metaphors and a lot of... Ha, <laughs> ha, that's a good point. Yeah. Hmm. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely more valuable when you're starving to death. It really is. So. And it, we're in this time of the Dark Ages, right, where there was a lot of collapses. The Hittites went down. Uh, the Mycenaeans went down. Everyone's going down. Everyone's going down. <laughs> going down. Not a good way. Meet me at the mall. It's going, <laughs> it's going down. down. <laughs> God, that's a bad song. It's so bad. <laughs> but anyways, yeah, so if you think about it, that could have been hugely significant and worth trading a lot of really valuable metals and diamonds and jewels and rubies and everything else. Definitely. Yeah. Now we're coming into uh, one of the most interesting sections of this episode because all of this wealth was said to, well, the location, the hub, the Mecca, most of this wealth was Mm -hmm. said to come from a place known as Ophir. Ophir. (laughs) Yeah. The alleged lands of gold. Yeah. So, yeah, they've never been identified by historians and basically exist solely in legend. But nonetheless, obviously, it's fascinated scholars for centuries. Yeah. And a lot of people do believe that these mines lie in the hills of the Sinai Peninsula. So Close this, by. This is the Anatolia Peninsula, the exact same. Yeah, it's like modern Turkey into Iraq, all that kind of stuff, right? Or Iraq's a few hop skits and jumps away. <laughs> yeah. Bust, no, bust out the map you got up here, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, okay. This is why you put it in here. I know. Iran. Oh, that's what I was thinking. Iran, there we not go. Iraq. That's right. Anyways. Uh, <laughs> so but like we mentioned before, um, there, yeah, so there's never been a specific record of its location, and perhaps... Solomon was kind of working jointly with the Phoenician king Haram in order to sort of acquire these vast quantities of gold. So I'm not even sure, like, who was actually charged with, like, being in charge of these lands of Ophir? I know, that's... That. There's, there's just, it's just a mystery ruler. Like, yeah. It's not as if Solomon himself laid claim to ruling it. No, like, clearly these were distant lands distant which lands. is why it's so weird like that a lot of the people well that a lot of modern scholars think it's so close by uh-huh. um just because of the nature of how far the phoenicians would travel for trade and if it was easy for him to get on his own why why would he bother trading valuable resources like wheat and and copper uh yeah for stuff he could get himself uh, you know what I mean? So it's true. I, I don't really know. About so that. the idea is that a lot of the source of gold for both of these rulers came from these legendary lands of Ophir. Yes. Where it has never been identified, but people think it might be on the Sinai Peninsula. Might be one of hundreds of might possible be. locations. Or maybe it's in Utah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's in Utah. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, so like we mentioned here before, like. Haram, he was the one who ruled Tyre. So this is in Lebanon. Yes. Part of the Phoenician Empire. And, uh, yeah. So it's it's very strange because, like, these were some of the best seafaring peoples of this time. So some kind of allude to the idea that perhaps commerce could have extended into the Atlantic and Indian Ocean. So we're going both ways. Yes. And perhaps as far as South Africa. So there's a lot going on there. There's a lot. I'm thinking to myself, like, I know coastal travel is a lot more um, comfortable for people as far as, like, their safety and, and having, like, recognizable landmarks and all this kind of stuff. But yeah. if you're going that far south, who's to say you're not going to go that far west, too, right? Perhaps. Potentially. I, don't know. I mean, and, and if you've got. Unknown. Absolutely. And if you've got massive enough ships, like I'm picturing, like Zheng He's, like treasure ships. Yeah, the Phoenician ships. You yeah. could carry some serious stuff in that. So uh, that, again, yeah, leads to the idea is there a connection, ancient 
globalized trade work network between, say, even the ancient Aztecs. Oh yeah. And We're getting ancient back Egyptians. Into my favorite stuff. Totally. <laughs> Pre-Columbian contact people. Love so, it. So, yeah, I'll just briefly mention the idea, because, like, we have this as gold. What if they were trading other things? You get spices, and we've seen evidence of cocaine in Egyptian pharaohs. So maybe there is something to it. Yeah, potentially. So, yeah. But just beyond, throwing it out there. Oh, right? no. I love it. Love it. That's, like, my favorite stuff to talk about. <laughs> Um, but of course the majority, so, okay. So the lands of Ophir, that has been the word that explorers and adventurers have fixated on. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yet that word never shows up in the primary source used to search for the wealth of King Solomon. That being the Bible, the, the, the Bible interestingly never ever mentions mines themselves. He only, it only Mm -hmm. mentions, uh, massive amounts of gold and wealth. It doesn't say where they come from. Presumably it's mine. Just that there's big caravans and ships of that type of thing. Right. So just to reiterate again, the Hebrew Bible tells us Solomon regularly used ships uh, of a, you know, of a... Let me... How am I phrasing this? (laughs) Of a place called Tarshish. (laughs) Yes, a place called Tarshish. (laughs) Tarshish. (laughs) Tarshish. You're saying that weird. (laughs) Tarshish. But this is strange. So in, in the Bible, it actually is... Sophir with an S, not Ophir with an O. Hmm. So that's annoying. <laughs> it's a little bit annoying, but that just go that the it's kind of just typical in when it comes to like ancient translations, right? Yeah. So this is what brings us to the point of like we don't know if it's referring to a place, a city, a a, a route, oh, like yeah. not an outright location, but a pathway towards one, a person. Mm. Like you could argue a lot of different things for yeah. the the origins of this word. Um, let me see here. The European version of the Bible and the Old Testament's basically, yeah, so those are the ones with the, with the S ahead of it. So fear. It's not Ophir. It's so fair. Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> the biblical tales, of course, go on to explain how King David ab- abdicated to his favorite son, Solomon. So mm-hmm. we get that part in the Bible too, which is of course a mix of primary and secondary sources. Like you can consider a lot of it as primary sources. The first temple was built by him. That's mentioned in the Bible. Okay. Uh, the, the wailing wall that we see today in Jerusalem as a source of prayer is sort of the remains of the outer, outer portion of Solomon's temple. Whoa. I didn't know that. I didn't know that either, but that's crazy. Yeah. Huh. And of course we know this from the Bible as well, that he built the, the main temple of Solomon to house the ark, which we don't know where it went to now. <laughs> that's cool. Okay. Right. So the question is, was this all lost in translation? So there's those that believe that the reason the lost minds of Ophir has mm-hmm. not been discovered is because the true name has been completely lost. So like the Bible was originally written in Hebrew, translated into Greek, and mm-hmm. then translated into Latin, and then translated into multiple other European languages, right. and old, including Old English mm-hmm. first, and then eventually into English, which <laughs> is like what Europeans in the 1800s, when this all ramped up, were reading. So it's already been gone through... <laughs> You know, so many different stages, yeah. <laughs> well over a thousand years of possibly misinterpretation, right? Exactly. In Greek, the name Ophir has origins with the word Ophis, which means serpent. <laughs> and the Hebrew word for serpent is Saraf. So, so is it more likely that? that the location of Ophir was, is it more likely named, like, can you go with the Greek version or the Hebrew version? Serpent, you know what I mean? yeah. Right? And do those tie to places or, or, or or trade routes or what we don't know hmm you know what I mean? so that kind of reminds me of maybe like a code word for like a river 
like, you know, like, kind of, like, an analogy for, like, you, you follow the serpent down, like, you know, like, it's, like, some sort of, yeah, like, riddle or something. I, that's kind of how it sounds, right? Mm-hmm. There's another part of the riddle, too. In the Hebrew Bible, it apparently mentions that round trips there and back to Ophir took three years. <laughs> Okay. Okay. So uh, that's a bit of a clue. Clearly, it's not in Sinai. No, the Sinai. No, that that totally right. Rules clearly, that it's out. not in Ethiopia. No, that wouldn't take three years to get there and back. Hmm. So, but what would take three years? <laughs> maybe traveling to the Far East. Maybe traveling to maybe South America, Central America, the Maya or the yeah, Aztec. Totally. That's really. We're getting into the juicy stuff here, people. We're oh. getting. But yeah. before we continue, we do have a promo break. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This week we are promoing uh, Folklore on the Rocks, which is really cool. They cover legendary monsters, cryptic creatures, the mysterious unknown, and it's all fueled by booze. Sweet. That's our kind of, uh, that's our kind of show. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Sometimes, today we've got coffee. We do. Eggnog coffee. Eggnog coffee. Tis the season. Yes. So, yeah, settle in, pour a drink, and get ready for some entertainment from these folks. Hi there, I'm Logan. And I'm Lindsay. And we host the new podcast, Folklore on the Rocks, where we talk about folklore and lesser-known creatures, cryptids, and monsters from around the world. When we say lesser-known, we mainly mean that we won't be covering creatures like Bigfoot or Nessie or Chupacabra, just because they're discussed so often, and the world just has so many other awesome options to draw from. Every two weeks, we'll be diving deep into the legends and culture that surround a specific creature, and getting a bit tipsy as we do so. But don't worry. We do our research sober. <laughs> On the weeks in between, we'll be narrating and discussing folk tales. So some will be historical folklore from the regions that our creatures are from, and some will be more like modern folklore, like no sleeps and creepypastas. You can find out more about us on our website, FolkloreOnTheRocks.com, on Facebook and Instagram at FolkloreOnTheRocks, and Twitter at, at FolkloreRocks. So come on, grab a drink, join us, and let's dig deep together. And we're back. So yeah, make sure you guys go check out Folklore on the Rocks. Cheers. So now we're getting into kind of the modern surge, so to speak. Um, Not modern, not so modern. Because I'm starting off with... (laughs) Modern-ish. (laughs) Modern-ish. We're starting off with basically the the most exciting, most epic European expedition that took place... Um, in the 1870s. Okay. And this was, of course, predating the publication of the classic novel, King Solomon's Mines. So there was a guy by the name of Karl Gottlieb Mal. He was a German explorer, self-proclaimed explorer. He had no formal training or education, um, but he was given, basically, he received a world atlas for his 10th birthday, uh, showing Africa, you know, at the early stages of the 1800s as essentially just a completely blank slate. That's so weird. Can you imagine, just picture that as a kid. No. It's bizarre to think, right? Like, you're looking at this massive piece of land, and you're like, what the heck is out there? You don't know. I don't even know. And now we've got a little artifact. Is that from Africa on the wall there? Or is um, that from... Burma. Burma, we have sorry. A, we have a Burmese tribal mask, mask here and, uh, and a bush knife. Pretty cool artifact. Pretty neat. Not from Africa, though, I guess. But, um, yeah, so he was enamored with this, the idea of adventure, right? And he spent his youth basically consuming everything he could about the exploration of Africa, and looking specifically into 16th century Portuguese documents because they were sort of the um, 
they were the first Europeans to really venture in to Africa before the British, before the Dutch. The Portuguese. Stuff they like were that. ahead of everyone, Hank. Hey? They were like the first to make it to North America too. Yeah. Allegedly. Allegedly. Right. Well, not like, you know what I mean? Like Unless classic, you count. Classic colonial narrative. Right. Mm-hmm. Unless you count St. Brendan. St. Brendan. <laughs> what about, uh, what was his name? Uh, the, the Chinese guy. Oh, yeah. Zeng. Zeng Hei. Zeng Hei. He might yeah. have done it too. Yeah. So where am I at here? The Portuguese. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, he would discover these Portuguese <laughs> texts discussing evidence of a discovery that matched up with this this place um, of Ophir, although he wouldn't have known it as that yet. He was basically just, he knew of the story of Solomon from the Bible. Everyone right. knew that story, but nobody knew of it as mines yet because the Nahal hadn't come out yet. They were looking for, he was looking for something that was right. connected to the wealth, whether it was mines or the kingdom of Sheba was kind of more of like what he was going off of. The ruins of it, okay. Right. Mm-hmm. So he ends up reading the works by a guy by the name of Tome Lopez, who is kind of best known for sailing with the famous Portuguese explorer uh, Vasco da Gama. Okay. And this guy Lopez believed that Ophir was originally the name for the uh, for Zimbabwe. What? Where do you So that he made that connect, linguistic connection somehow. Of oh. course, we find out later on that this is not... Accurate, Anything, yeah. Right? yeah it's just... But this is just a good story. So, and this is during the Renaissance period, right? This was the central hub of, of African gold trade and this kind of stuff. So he believed that this was a good starting point. So this is South Africa into, Zim, into basically northern South Africa into Zimbabwe. Mm-hmm. So no experience, no nothing. He's trying to find funding so that he can go over and... Uh, explore. Right. And didn't he like uh, appeal to a number of different like publications, like newspapers that might be interested in like chronicling his journeys and stuff? Yes. But he was kind of a nobody. He was an absolute nobody and nobody really wanted to take him on. But he managed to basically like scrape and claw. He worked on a ship as a deckhand, made his way to South Africa on his own. No, no funding at all. So all the way to the South, eh? Yes. The tip. Okay. He, he basically... Actually, I don't even know if I included it in this part here because um, I get into just the good stuff. But yeah, he goes there the first time. He finds, he's, he's venturing in. He has some troubles. So he has to turn back. He writes to um, the the head of basically like the German not, geographic society or something or other like that and saying, I've, I'm, I'm on to something here. Mm-hmm. He ends up getting some funding. So he's like, sweet. So let's just we'll skip that boring part of the story. So he's mm-hmm. got some funding, but he runs into some trouble as he but goes he didn't out there. Even, he, uh, sorry, just to no, add no, to that okay. little point there, the publisher guy or editor, whoever he was in contact with, was just basically like, sure, we might run it, we might not. But he like he sort of loosely stipulated that they would cover his adventure. Right. But it wasn't actually guaranteed. Oh, here's here. This was the guy's name, August Peterson. So the editor Peterson. of Germany's Geographic Research Magazine. Cool. Yeah. So... Yeah, so this guy ends up funding him. Um, he For actually ends up years. giving him eight years of funding. Whoa. Because this is going to take a while, right? He's oh. not in, like, Jeeps and stuff. Like, you got to... That's true, You're yeah. venturing on horseback and camelback and, like, whatever, right? <laughs> he eventually, after being funded, and he had already di- almost died multiple times, almost starved, almost died of dehydration, he eventually makes it to the border of Botswana and Zimbabwe. This is... Oh, this is, I, I put 1967. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be 1867. July 27th of 1867. And he basically comes across a site he knew was a former site of smelting ore to extract gold. So okay. he took some samples, found some gold in the rocks. 
he discovered a, uh, yeah, this was like a massive discovery, but could these have been links to the actual minds of King Solomon? But he, he thought so perhaps, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's reaching. Exactly. So he writes back to the magazine. They're, they're all excited, right? But he needs to keep going. So he ends up pushing further and he just ends up discovering ruins that he believes to be the lost empire of Sheba. The, because, the land of Ophir. Because it's like, it's a walled sort of fortress-like thing, and he thinks it's way too sophisticated to be of, like, um, African exactly. manufacture. Mm-hmm. So this is September 5th, it's now 1871, after years of venturing further and further and further into all this undeveloped terrain, he finds these ruins. So this walled city, and it does match the descriptions of Sophir or Ophir in the stories. None in the Bible, but they do reference Sophia, right? And Solomon's temple. So it was similar, he thought, to like the construction of Solomon's temple. Okay. So he, he was thinking that this is like inland Phoenician uh, construction and not clearly not African. And this was the location of Sheba. This must be where the Mayans were. Mm-hmm. I don't that's know. What, really do, what, do, you, what do you think of this? I, I'm just thinking to myself, that's really far away. <laughs> like, if he started from the tip of Africa and South Africa there and made made his way up like about halfway. It's a long way. I don't know if that is like, you know, that's a reach and we will see that it definitely was a reach. Right. Um, but yeah, as far as his, his gumption, uh, give him a round of applause for that because you wouldn't find me traipsing into Africa with nothing but the clothes on my back and, like, you know, a little... He didn't even have proper water sources, like, or resources, right? He just no. didn't even... No. Man, it reminds me of that guy that went looking for the ship in the desert of uh, California. It's like, dude, just bring some more water. Like, I know, what right? The heck, I man? know. It's almost like self-handicapping or something. Or unless it's just adding to the sort of... Um, hero adventure narrative of a lot of these documentaries, right? They sort of rely on this sort of human exceptionalism and these like champions of history and whatever else. And it's always just like a single man doing it, but yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No. And of course this is the 1870s. So he, and he's, and he's uneducated quote unquote. So he makes some leaps. He mm-hmm. discovers this red wood beam being used to support a massive part of the structure and assumes that it is red cedar, <clears throat> which was not known to exist in the lower Zambezi area, but from Lebanon. And he believed this to be part of that ancient trade and that mm. this was proof. Of course, they find out later that this was not <laughs> red cedar from mm-hmm. Lebanon. And this, in fact, was a medieval era African structure, ah. thousands of years more modern. So it was an African kingdom. Yes. Okay. Um, and uh, no links at all. Mm-hmm. But, but we wanted to mention the story though, because this was like, he was, I, I mean, later on crushed. At first yeah. he comes back and people believe this to be. Oh, true, true, true. Right. And the story basically gets stolen by H.R. Haggard, who ends up writing the novel King Solomon's Minds based off of this journey by Maul. Maul gets nothing out of it mm-hmm. at all. And he ends mm-hmm. up committing suicide. That's sad. Well, it wasn't even like, it co- It was kind of murky, right? He could have committed suicide. It could have just been death by alcoholism. Uh, essentially, they found him. Uh, he had fallen out of a second story window. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of sad. Yeah. Poor guy. But yeah. Poor Maul. But, yeah, he did make a lot of assumptions, a lot of sort of uh, classic 
sort of colonial error scholarly mistakes in not recognizing the abilities of Africans themselves, right? That's yeah. a very racist narrative if you think about it. The Typical fact that of the times. Just taking away, it's, it's exactly like almost like the ancient aliens hypothesis, right? Where it's like it's taking away all of the ability and all of the amazingness of the humans that were responsible for these achievements and just, just yeah, like, like, uh, giving it, giving credit to someone else entirely. Absolutely. Kind of totally. Yeah. I mean, they're, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that was one aspect of the, of the pre-Columbian contact episodes we did that we, we chose not to focus on West Africa, but that was, could have been a full episode like West African kingdoms being capable of making it transatlantic Ooh. trade. And those are possibly the, uh, influence of the Olmec heads and stuff like that. Right. Super advanced that. civilizations. Totally. Yeah. And it's interesting too. Yeah. They're so advanced. And then the methods that this guy Maul was using were like you said, like not very advanced, not very sophisticated. He literally just did a visual comparative yeah. of the wood. He didn't even do like an analysis of sorts or anything. Right. It was just literally like compare one piece of wood to the other. This looks like red cedar to me. Yes, it is. Okay. And finds evidence of smelting, you know, connects it to like way more ancient mining than when... Right. I guess carbon dating wasn't a thing back then. No. Mm -hmm. No, it wasn't yet. So, I mean, in fairness to him, he obviously found something that was really significant because it just, he didn't realize how significant it was. He would end up changing the way people viewed ancient African civilizations. That's, yeah, that's actually hugely significant. Right. So he made a huge impact, just not in the way he expected to. True, yeah. It's almost like the classic case of, like, the researcher or the explorer going out and then finding something and just ascribing it to their theory that they've already developed. Classic mistake, right? Classic mistake. Classic colonial uh, anthropology. Yeah, (laughs) and it continues on to this day, right? And sort of, like these pseudo-enlightened forms of archaeology, perhaps. But right. So... That's a, that's a side note. So but the mine's not there. The mine isn't there. So where the heck are they? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> If exactly. they did exist at all. And obviously, yeah, a ton of speculation. There, yeah, there's been suggestions from all over the world. Africa is a huge one. Mediterranean, of course. We already talked about the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, we got Sumatra, the Gold Coast, so like the Cote d'Or, um, as well as even like North America. So that's getting... Well, North, North and South America. North and South America, yeah. sorry. Just the Americas. The Americas, general. yeah. But um, many historians and archaeologists continue to believe that um, all of the gold that was reaped in Egypt and other cities such as Ur, which was of southern Mesopotamia, now modern-day Iraq, um, had their gold sourced from trade. So this would have come from okay. other cultures, so such as the Sumerians, such as maybe the people of uh, Mesopotamia, all this kind of stuff. It was interesting. Actually, Ur is uh, <laughs> such a weird name. It's just you are. Yeah. And I hadn't even actually come across this until just now. And it's interesting because it actually has another biblical reference in relation to Abraham. And okay. he was, yeah, apparently he took his disciples and left Ur and founded the lands of Canaan, which we discussed in the Sea People's episode, the Canaanites. Right. Yeah. So that's a little side note there. This is actually so fitting that we're doing this episode post Sea Peoples because this is the next era. Totally. It's so weird how it fell into place that way. I kind of want to do another episode following along like maybe a hundred years after this yeah we should we should find a just cool do a myth. series working our way up through into the middle uh, yeah. medieval t- period and then the birth of christ and beyond oh, and... let's do it okay we're doing it yeah, cool. <laughs> but anyways yeah so the lands of canon um were all the stuff but anyways getting back to like where the actual location of these mines could have maybe been all right so of course <laughs> africa <laughs> africa yes so yeah the north 
there's lots of known gold deposits that were used in antiquity and beyond. So ancient Egyptians obviously are known for their plentiful gold artifacts, all this kind of stuff. It's said that their production was actually so extensive that it approached a monopoly for several thousand years. So we're talking like from like probably 500 BC type deal. Oh, I was even thinking later or sorry, okay. earlier than earlier. that. So like probably like 6,000 or 5,000 BC all the yeah. way up to like one, like now. Right. So Ancient. like 900. Well, yeah, it says several thousand years. So <laughs> uh, it's not just 1,000 years. <laughs> well, the Berbers were traveling around 8,000 BC. So yeah, I don't know. There's another suggestion here that um, is related to this lost city of Punt. And uh, it says here that, okay, so by the third millennium BC, Egyptian merchants were exploring a lot of the sort of African coastline and Arabian coast. So this is like in the east. And it says here that this now lost city of Punt or Punt, I don't know. It was a major trading center that offered a lot of gold, rare spices. So it was almost like a junction and it's believed to be what is now Somalia. Okay. Yeah. Um, But it's interesting because Egyptian texts describe this land so punt or punt or whatever yeah as literally the land of the gods because of really? its wealth and resources so that comes into question like okay did this just was this just like a a center for everything to come in or was this an actual primary source of these materials right and the location's never been confirmed never so very been confirmed. much like ophir exactly is that ophir <laughs> I don't is know. Is that just another name? I don't know if that would take place. three years, though. Just Anyways, that's the... I don't want to get hung up on those tiny little details, but it is important, right, to think, like... But that's just it. That's, like, the translation issue. Does, like, three yeah. years... Was it actually, like, three months? Oh, true, actually. Right, right. Was it three days? And somebody, like... It was a typo? Yeah. <laughs> a, a, a scribe-o? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like... <laughs> a scribe-o. Whoopsies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where's my, uh... Oh, it's a whiteout. <laughs> Yeah, um, the whiteout would be just like tossing the scribe into a flaming pit or something. <laughs> so maybe, yeah, exactly that. Could this have been Ophir, but it's just uh, another misnomer, another, I don't even know, interpretation or yeah. name. There's multiple names for the same thing, even in the English language. Definitely. But um, another suggestion is that perhaps Solomon could have like reopened or just like um, intensified the production in existing mines that were used by Egypt or other North African kingdoms. So this is the waning of Egyptian prowess in in the Mediterranean and at this time. Absolutely. So maybe perhaps they had simply abandoned a lot of this stuff and... I feel like that could account for some of the wealth. Yeah, probably not all of it, probably not all. And so, yeah, I don't know. There's others that say that there's another location that could have been in Tunisia. Okay. So that's another really, that's a whole other nut right there. There's so many different places. It kind of reminds me of, uh, not the Lost Ark of the Covenant. What's that one? The the gold pit, the money pit. Oh, like the, like with the, um. Oak Island. Oak Island (laughs) with like the possible, uh, Holy Grail. The Grail, right. So, like, the Grail has been rumored to be in so many different locations yeah. in the world. This definitely reminds me of the same time. Absolutely. Ugh. Absolutely Mystery, does. Mystery, No, guess. for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's kind of funny, right? Yeah. So, Asia is another possible location of the mines. Okay. Um, so, moving further east. Into the So, east? of course, they were trading with massive eastern empires um, mm. that were extremely wealthy, but... Who, who, who could these people have been that they were mining these massive amounts of gold? 
I kind of came across, I had never heard of them before, the ancient Dravidians. So mm. these are basically ancient peoples of the of southern India and the islands of the South Indian continent, okay. subcontinent. Basically, they may have established mines all over that area and as far as South Africa. Like, basically, these were ancient seafaring Hindus who, like, you know, an advanced ancient Hindu population that could have possibly established their own mines. Yeah, okay. Because they would have traveled along the east coast of Africa, along, like, past Madagascar. Yeah. We even had that one reference in one episode where it was like, there could have been that landmass that was there that just sunk into the... And that was reported Ooh. to be a land of extreme wealth, too. So, hmm. Could Ophir have been an island? Now it's lost forever. A lost continent? Oh, that's cool. I in like that. In the Indian Ocean? We need to write mm. a book. We need to, like, convert <laughs> some of these into some stories. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but, yeah, the Dravidians were definitely... Now we know, looking into um, paleoanthropology uh, and stuff like that, that they were known for their gold, ivory, and other sort of precious things, gemstones and stuff like that. So extremely mm. wealthy okay. and very much adorned in the same way that Solomon was in his temple. Oh. Uh, so su- historians these days basically support the idea that certain words from the as areas have common roots in, in, or, in origin in the Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, let me just see here. What's, what was an example of one of them? Oh my goodness. And I don't think I even included it here, <laughs> but Okay, there was another claim in 1887 that there's links between the Coptic name for India as Sophir to the Indian river Kopen, oh. C-O-P-H-E-N. Oh, we got a river here. What if this is a serpent? Okay, so hey? exactly. That's mm-hmm. a metaphor for that. But there's also just these linguistic connections. Yeah. So it's, we don't know. So the Coptic name for India is Sophir. Okay, so the 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 reference in the Bible is Sophir, not Ophir. Right. Does that mean that these mines are... In, in India? India, or does it mean that they're in South Africa mined by the ancient Indians oh. or Dravidians? Yeah. We don't know. That's it's- actually... And you know, that would be very strategic to have your mind situated in an area that is far away... Not far, far away, but far enough away from your most populous areas in case someone came to attack. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, why are you attacking here? Just go over and... <laughs> get the mine. Get the mine. Totally right. <laughs> you know I mean, that's interesting. Yeah, it would have been great. Yeah, just for security purposes. I Absolutely. Guess. Mm-hmm. And there's other proof of them definitely being in South Africa too, like in, in ancient times. So there's legacies of this empire that can be found in place names. So Natal is a location in South Africa. Oh my gosh, I'm gonna butcher this. Mm-hmm. Do you want to give that a go? Mapum Alanga, yeah, that's, that's good. near the Swaziland border in South Africa, allegedly has roots in 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 Hindu origin. Okay, God, I find that to be totally fascinating. Um, there's <laughs> yeah. also over twenty thousand ancient stone ruins scattered throughout the uh, the mountains in South Africa that are possibly you know not just from you know they're from people around the area, right? There's a lot of seafaring pe- groups, right? So I don't know. I find that to be interesting from a linguistic perspective 20,000 ancient stone ruins so like ruins of like buildings just yeah of civilization civilizations yeah yeah i like that what do you what do you make of that what do you make of it possibly being because that's close by i guess that could be would that be three years though I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Would I'm it take well, three years to sail get, that far? <laughs> you get a little turned around. <laughs> you never but know. you've got land to follow, you know what I mean? Yeah, so, that's true. I don't know. Of course, we're coming to the most exciting of them all. Yeah. And the most outlandish, I would say, but I'm not going to rule it out. And that would be the idea that the Phoenicians could have been trading with peoples in the Americas. 
that being the the gold mines of the ancient Aztec and Maya. So there are, of course, those who believe the ancient Phoenicians made it this far. And there's literally like every century there were new theories of how the Phoenicians could have made it. There's like different legends. Hmm. Um, there's even ones linked to Mormonism. And basically oh, right. the ancient Israelites coming to North America um, and leaving behind the relics that would eventually be found. And, By, what's his name? Oh gosh, of... I don't know. I, we, nah, <laughs> I don't know. I we're not remember. we're not getting into Mormonism today. <laughs> but uh, there have been ancient Hebrew inscriptions found in rocks all over the U.S. There's links between, like I just said, between Mormonism and visits to the Americas from ancient Israelites. Some people even think that some of the lost tribes of Israel might have made their way over to North America, South America, like during the Exodus, or like. Uh, well, this would have been post Solomon. So after the Babylonian invasion, which we'll get to in a second here, hmm. I, bl- I believe. <laughs> or okay. did we skip over it? I can't remember. Oh, those Babylonians keep popping up, eh? Um, yeah. So like there's tons of people who believe this, like, including um, a lot of the Spanish who were kind of the, of course, like in the modern colonization of South America, they were the first ones there seen other artifacts that predated them. And this guy, Benito Arias Montana, he was a Spanish Orientalist and basically an editor of a version of the Catholic Bible. He was around in the area, oh gosh, I don't have the date here. It was like 15 something is when Mm -hmm. he was born. So this was like early stages of Spanish conquest. He believed the Peruvians were the ancient descendants of the Ophir tribes. Peruvians? Weird, right? Okay. Okay. And he believed that the Yucatan province <clears throat> shared a name with the father of Ophir, Loctan. Huh. I don't even, like, you know what I mean? Like, these are just how legends and stories have been morphed totally. over a thousand years. And now here he is in 15-whatever, <laughs> interpreting it how he will. I love this guy's described as a Spanish Orientalist. <laughs> Which, if you've ever read um, Edward Said's <laughs> Orientalism, you'll have a much better understanding of what that term is. But that's Do you want to give it a little bit of a description? Oh, well... Uh, Oh my gosh, on the top of my head, it's just like the idea that these, it's basically like the exoticization of foreign cultures to the extent that you believe you're an expert, but you don't really know anything. It's kind of like the really layman's version of that. And Edward Said says it a lot more brilliantly, but (laughs) I would recommend reading his book, even though it is kind of, it's one of those ones, hey, like you read it too when we were in university. Way back, I'd have to brush it up, brush up again, but. Yeah, but he just makes a really scathing critique of colonial types of, um, cultural anthropology and and that type of thing and archaeology yeah Mm -hmm. so i don't know what do you make of this like obviously we know that the aztecs and the maya had massive amounts of gold they mined a lot of gold and they weren't really the type that were the ocean faring type right so it would have come it would have been like a east to west right yeah a movement and then i don't know but it's like why trade gold though like, I, I know it's important, but that seems like such a long way to go with a heavy cargo. Yeah. Well, they were doing it in the 1500s, so it's not to say that it wouldn't be unheard of. Just I the guess. prestige of it, right? Yeah. To yeah. say that you were able to bring these types of ornate artifacts back. And to me, in my mind, like, it's interesting how Solomon, I guess it just comes from a point of scarcity, right? Like, what do you not have? Obviously, he was in the Fertile Crescent, so he has all of the food he could possibly need and those types of supplies. So he's just looking for ways to sort of 
um, like sort of like bulk up his sort of pomp and, and like, you know what I mean? His yeah. image is kind of what I'm, what I would interpret for all these like gold and riches and all this like concentration of wealth type right. of thing. But as far as like the idea of a connection to the Americas, I'm still struggling with that one because I, I indirectly through trade with Phoenicians, sure. I would love to look at more uh, information regarding the technology of their ships and how that would compare to the ancient Chinese junks and if there could be even like even what if the ancient Chinese were the ones actually accomplishing this and then they had only gone to say the Orient to China and stuff like and we're trading with them exactly and so it was initially sourced from you just never know well right? if you think they're trading with southern um, Indians then that would make sense. Like they mm-hmm. would have Eastern trade with the peoples of China and, and those, and right. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. We need to do another pre-Columbian contact episode just on the Phoenicians. Totally. I think yeah. um, that needs to be a focus for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's so much to mention, including things like, you know, mystery Hill, that uh, strange <gasps> structure in New Hampshire, oh, yeah. that's possibly linked to the Phoenicians or the Minoans, things like that. But I, I just love this theory, though, because if we're looking for places where we know there was massive amounts of gold, where they could have gold to spare, mm-hmm. if they had, you know, because they, they didn't grow wheat and they didn't grow saffron or spices coming from the from the east. Right. So these would have been super exotic Pepper. and like crazy things for, 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 the, for the ancient Maya and Aztec, and they would have been willing to give up gold for sure. Mm-hmm. The question is, is, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I love it, but I don't know. I'm just getting excited. I'm just getting excited. <laughs> we have um, a section here that's actually honestly kind of a duplicate, talking about just like getting into the evidence of King David and Solomon in general. Mm-hmm. But we've kind of already touched on it, like yeah. the, the, the Tel Dan inscription, talking about King David, and obviously the references to, to Sheba and the kingdom of Saba as a real place, that link to Sheba, Sheba's link to Solomon. So we have that as allegedly like evidence, so to speak, of Solomon, but nothing, nothing direct. We're pretty much going off the Old Testament and that's what people have been doing for hundreds of years. Literally Old Testament map, compass, water bottle, trekking into wherever the heck you think (laughs) the mines might be. That's Which so I think amazing. is just so cool. I think that's amazing. You know what I mean? It's um, a lot of uh, faith. Absolutely. Modern day, like super modern day, not Karl Mao. Mm-hmm. There have been mines found in uh, modern day Jordan that are definitively copper mines. Hmm. And people now do believe, archaeologists believe, that these are part of King so, Solomon's ancient mines. And that it very well could have been copper as his main bargaining chip and trade okay. because tin was mined in the British Isles and other places. Mm-hmm. Copper could be found elsewhere, but there's lots of places that the Phoenicians had control over where copper wasn't readily available and they mm. still needed to make bronze. Even though we're heading into the iron age, bronze was super important. It's still, it's a transitioning way. It's like, if you want to compare it to today, it's like the transition away from fossil fuels to um, other forms of free energy. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. I'm not free. <laughs> right. Get in there. So yeah, they, they basically discovered this by finding solidified slag. So this was evidence of ancient smelting, which is really cool. That is really neat. Yeah. So and there's another part to this mystery too, right? Well, there's there's a couple different parts. Like you get the whole mystery of the Ark of the Covenant, the introduction to that. Yes. And then you also get the actual like 
what happened to all this amazing amounts of wealth that yeah. was attributed to Solomon? This yeah. $60 trillion worth of jewels and everything. Like, yeah. where, where is it? Exactly. So it's, it's missing, right? It's missing. No one knows where. No one knows. It's so crazy. This is possibly the greatest lost treasure ever in the history. Mm-hmm. I mean, definitely the Ark of the Covenant would be on just historical grounds alone, religious Man. grounds alone. Imagine, eh? But, there's that uh, one guy that claimed to have found it and then just... That really annoyed me, that story. That, I can't remember his name, but he was basically just like a guy from Utah, wasn't he? And he went over to, oh, what city did he go to? He was like in Israel or Jerusalem or something, and he ended up um, doing his own excavation that was completely right. unlicensed. And he yeah. claimed he used a uh, microscopic or a scope thing that he used because he was like a um, a nurse, I think, back in the U.S. Something like that. And he that, used yeah. a scope to, and he saw the Ark of the Covenant, and now they've resealed everything, and, and they've banned him from entering again. And <laughs> but all of course, they and, said that like they had never even heard of him, like he never took out permits yeah. to excavate or anything. And then like, you get the Ethiopian side of it, where they claim they have it, and like you mentioned, they have guards that are literally trained and don't leave. Yeah. building their entire life yeah they're like anointed as like the protectors of the covenant and they spend their entire lives like in this temple i wonder if they get to see it oh i think they're like the only ones who do really and they're like unless they're just oh man that would suck you don't even get to see it you just have to like stand outside the door <laughs> yeah you don't even know if it's in there what if, just, what if there's nothing yeah <sighs> but it wasn't just in? the ark so like um uh golden musical instruments that known as like the tabernacle which is linked to mormonism oh, okay. the gold plates of mormonism or whatever um, and obviously just mass amounts of jewels and things like that. Mm-hmm. But alas, 589 BCE, mm-hmm. the Babylonians under the rule of King Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> Give it a go. Give it a go. Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> okay. The second. The second. He laid siege to Jerusalem. So this was basically this ended up in the destruction of the city and of Solomon's temple. And this was in the summer of 587. And it is said at this point, Solomon's Solomon's treasures disappeared forever, never to be seen again. Disperse the winds? Were they just raided by individual, you know, parts of the Babylonian forces and taken wherever? I don't know. There, there's people that believe the treasures are hidden in all kinds of places all over the world. Um, they could be close by. They could be as in the far lands away of Israel, as... Babylonia. That's right. That's this little point here that says other parts of the treasure were delivered into the hands of the angels, Shamshiel, Michael, Gabriel, and perhaps Sariel. Uh, angels. Yeah. So as described in like in the Bible. Right? Interesting. Like I'm thinking like Archa- Archangel Gabriel isn't that kind of yeah. the guy with the little tutti fruity trumpet or something doesn't he have a trumpet? the tutti fruity trumpet angel i don't know he likes a toot away on it i don't know maybe <laughs> we, this is why we need a biblical scholar to reach to reach out to us here i think i'm thinking of the angels and demons movie right <laughs> remember where he's like this gabriel he's actually like a dark angel and like he's like totally corrupted by the end of the movie and he's like trying to kill them ah uh, okay is that angels and demons or is that another one i don't know mm-hmm. angels Meh. and demons i don't know so yeah, you mentioned already. So like, yeah, so those are, those are the mysteries. Where, where's the, where did this wealth come from? These, this, these epic mines. And if, if he really was as rich as he was and did have the Ark, where, where is it now? Where is it? There's literally, there's almost nowhere on earth that hasn't claimed to be the location of the Ark. 
And again, that's kind of the main one. Like you could find all the rubies and gold in the world as a part of Solomon's treasure. None of it would be as significant as finding the Ark of the Covenant. Nope. I have a list here of possible places and some of them are <laughs> quite, quite crazy. All right. Let's hear so it. the tomb of King Tut. So in a 1922 picture from the excavation of uh, Tutankhamun's tomb shows the Anubis shrine, which essentially fits almost to a T the description of the Ark of the Covenant. What? But shortly after this photographs of the explanation, uh, shortly after this, um, basically, yeah, the, yeah, I don't even know, it's debated. Is this indeed the Ark or not? I, I don't think it would be. Uh, what do you mean? Like there was an actual object excavated from it as well? Or it was just the situation and the location was fitting of it? After inspecting the artifact, the dimensions of the Enuma Shrine did not match the purported dimensions of the Ark of the Covenant. So um, it's still left up for debate. And that's just it too. Like even um, the appearance of the Ark of the Covenant too, right? Like a lot of people describe it as this amazingly ornate gold-gilded box. But then there's other scholars that will say if this box was actually meant to be carried, um, it could have it could have been quite simple, right? It could have been just like a simple wooden box. Balsam wood or something like Balsam that, Balsam wood, right? perhaps. And then there was that other mention in a documentary we watched um, just in the last couple of weeks when we were doing research prep for this. And it was describing how in the ruins of, I can't remember where exactly, in this area, though, that the art could have been, there was actually found uh, like a wooden box um, that would have had like a door inset. And it actually okay. resembles, it's a miniaturized version of the entranceway to Solomon's temple. What? And um, cool. legend has it, I can't remember what the, it basically was translated to mean like a, um, a doorway or entranceway, like an ark, right? Yeah. Of the covenant. So it was like, um, basically would have depicted uh, idol in the middle of it. So like this okay. box would have opened up as almost like a mini like play thing going on where it would have and it was just literally so people while they were traveling they would have a icon that they could pray to so it's like a a, a a mobile church so to speak but in like a little like you know like foot by foot box and apparently there were more than one of these found That's and so really a lot of people are thinking like wait a second is the ark of the covenant is that literally just um a phrase that means to like hold the covenant, like, you know it's what like I mean? Something, like the, yeah, some sort of a metaphor. To hold a religious artifact or something. Hmm. That's me kind of butchering their explanation. It was a few weeks ago and I was like falling asleep. And I was watching <laughs> <laughs> no, that's interesting though. I never came across that. So yeah, this is another interesting possible location. The cathedral of Our Lady of Chartres in France. There are people that believe that the Knights Templar found the Ark of the Covenant, covenant during their crusades in mm -hmm. North Africa. And, uh, yeah, and brought it back to France. And it is basically hiding in a secret chamber, Indiana Jones-esque like place huh. in France. That's Parted a crazy one. They're just like hidden away. No well, I picture like, uh, you remember in the, the third Indiana Jones where he goes to, oh, he's in Italy and they're in the library, but it used to be a cathedral and then he like smashes the floor. So like nobody knows it's there, but there was like an ancient grave underneath. Oh, okay. Um, so anyway, that's like a, this, the, the legend and lore of this cathedral in France. Cool. Um, some people believe it, it's to be found in hidden in the mountains in Jordan, you know, hidden up in the cliffs somewhere in that region. Um, one of the 64 locations designated in the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found in the late 1940s. So that's 64 other possible locations. Okay. Some people claim it to be held in South Africa by the Lemba tribe. Huh. Uh, Who yeah. the hell are they? Well, 
Um, (laughs) (laughs) Just the ARC holders? Yeah, ARC holders. Sure. We touched on the Ethiopians. They claim that their Orthodox Church has it, right? Like, (laughs) um, at the Church of Our Lady Mary of Zion in the city, right, like, they claim to have it on the bottom of Lake Tiberius. I want to see some evidence of this because I... And a government storage facility in in the... Uh, oh my gosh. What's it called? Oh my God. The, con- <laughs> the country in Italy. Like the, the Vatican. Rome? Oh. <laughs> the Vatican country, City. The country in Italy. Rome. <laughs> Rome. <laughs> Vatican City. Some people Name believe it's there. something you can fake. A horse. A horse. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's a, a city. It's a bad insider. <laughs> okay. All right. So there's lots of locations and yeah. a lot of people are touting it and claiming it, but a lot of, none of these people are actually like coming up with evidence and, and photographs and, no. and displays and an no. actual physical object no. that is the ark. Right. With these 10 commandments. I want to see these 10 commandments. I know, right? I Don't believe tell me what you. to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're uh, really more like guidelines. Yeah. They're more like loose guidelines. <laughs> yeah. It's like when you see a speed sign, it's in, it's in yellow, not white. It's just a recommendation. You know? it's just um, rec- <laughs> I have a question for you just yeah. to wrap this up here. Like what, what, are you, what is your favorite theory? Like, what do you more ascribe to over others? Well, my favorite, most fun theory is that the Phoenicians could have made it as far as South America and okay. that there was this gold trade that way. Maybe because they even believed that the gold was different. It's different gold coming from a different part of the world. You know yeah. what I mean? But most likely, I feel like the mines were never in one location. I feel like Ophir morphed into that term just like Queen Sheba might have as well. Yeah. And that this wealth came from all over. His own mines, possibly in North Africa, um, taking over ancient Egyptian mines, copper trade coming from multiple sources around um, modern day Europe and the, the the Near East. I do like the ancient Indian connection because we do mm-hmm. know that they had gold. I think that's I think more localized trade makes the most sense for it. Yeah. When it comes to the Ark, my favorite theory is that it is still hiding in some unknown cave in the mountains somewhere in the Middle East. Okay. I feel like that is. Just like in the mountain, in that with that guy that went looking for it. That yeah, was like a... hiding somewhere, stored some into some secret, hard to reach crevice, and uh, is left to be found. What if the Nazis have it? <laughs> they definitely went looking for it. That's <laughs> that's hence the first Indiana Jones movie. Yeah, right. They thought it had special powers they could harness, right? Well, this has been really fun. Uh, What's your favorite theory? I honestly, I don't really have a favorite per se. I do agree with the idea that it is most likely that these exactly that lands of Ophir would have been it's just an amalgamation of lands of the gods lands of abundance right it's the same thing as say the lands of paradise or um uh, eden or something you know what i mean like yeah. it's all just it's a, a mythical place that people can hold in their heads as like the idealized form but yeah. then it's actually the reality yeah it 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 would have been so difficult to maintain your legitimacy as an ancient ruler. So stuff like this would have been hugely important and significant, right? Yeah. Uh, just to maintain that. Not to say that he necessarily needed that per se, but the idea that this man knows of this mythical place that is providing abundance and wealth for all of us as his subjects, right. that's a very big mythos and a very powerful thing to carry around and oh, to yeah. think, you know? Like Absolutely. so I just 
I just love the story. I love the narratives. I love going down each rabbit hole. I hate it when you get to a dead end. <laughs> that's, that's my least. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I know this has been so much fun. I, I thank you because you did so much work for this episode and I, I, had I appreciate fun. it. I had a lot of fun uh, researching for this one. I, I mean, we love our ancient, we do. ancient mysteries. And I've got ideas for about like five to seven more episodes. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. So again, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode and mm-hmm. we want to hear what you guys think. So we want, I mean, where do you, where do you think the lands of Ophir were exactly. or could still be? Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts on the Ark of the Covenant? Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, Next week for Film Friday, we are covering The Wailing. Yes. Just wanted to mention that as well. Anything else to uh, before we wrap it up? Uh, just a quick reminder, our Patreon um, oh, yeah. bonus episodes will be free for all of you to listen to for about two weeks starting. We're thinking it'll be um, December 15th or 16th. It'll be yes. available. Yes. So head to patreon.com forward slash into the portal, or you can just go to into the portal.com. Our link is on, on there mm-hmm. and uh, go catch up on the blogs and stuff too. If you guys True, haven't been yeah. on the website for a little while. Born but, on your lunch uh, break, just go peek at the blog. Absolutely. That's fun. So yeah, um, looking forward to all of that good stuff and uh, we'll see you guys again soon. Mm-hmm. Like it at oddfixnetwork.com.